Great big announcements from Wizards of the Coast, including Spelljammer Confirmed. We're going to take a look at all of the announcements that Wizards of the Coast made in the D&D Direct seminar this past Thursday. And we're going to have a spotlight for Shadow Under Hardflint Hall by JVC Parry. And we're going to answer some Patreon questions today. All of this on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. If you like this show, you can help support it directly by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive adventures, the City of Arches, a city source book that I put together, all kinds of great stuff. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Yeah, so... Quite a, quite a week, a lot of stuff that a lot of stuff going on. We are in, I think, the final three days of the Sly Flourish bundle of holding. This bundle of holding had a tremendous response. Three days, twelve hours left as of this recording. I don't know how much left for you, depending on how you're reading this. And for six bucks, you get access to all of the Lazy DM books except for the Lazy DM's companion. This is all in PDF. So these are electronic versions of all these books. Six bucks, you get access to Sly Flourish's uh, Dungeon Master Tips, the original Lazy Dungeon Master, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, and the Lazy DM Workbook. But the real big deal is when you drop 20 bucks, I think it's still 20 bucks, right? Yeah, 19.99. 20 bucks, look at the total number bone. Looks like crazy, crazy popular, right? You get $102 worth of my PDFs for 20 bucks. That includes all four fantastic books, Fantastic Locations, Fantastic Adventures, Fantastic Lairs, and Ruins of the Grunder Root, along with... Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DMs Workbook, Sly Flourish's Dungeon Master Tips, and the original Lazy Dungeon Master, all in one great big package. It is by far the best deal you will find on these books. So three days left, get on it or you're going to be sad. So Wizards had lots of big announcements. They had a, they managed to pack a lot of stuff into 30 minutes. They said they were going to have 30 minutes for the announcements, and it was quite a lot of 30 minutes. And so I listed them out in order of the timeline. How soon are we going to see this stuff? So I'm going to try to get through a lot of this, but we're going to start with something that was a surprise, which is this idea of bringing back the monstrous compendium. They kind of talked about how you used to have in the second edition days, a great big three ring binder. Some people hated the three ring binder and some people liked the three. I don't know. I haven't heard a lot of people like, oh, I love the three ring binder. I wish they bring that back. Most people were like, no, I like books, but whatever. And they had all of the monsters would have like one single sheet. So they're kind of bringing that back, sort of, but not really. In that Wizards of the Coast is releasing free, fully designed monsters that you can grab, cost you nothing at all, and drop into your game. And so you can get it both from Wizards of the Coast directly by signing up for their D&D digital library, which is kind of weird. Or you can get them directly on, on D&D Beyond. And they are free to everybody. So you have to sign up, but once you sign up, you get access to them. And what you get is a nice PDF. This is the D&D Beyond version, but I also have right here the PDF that you get from Wizards of the Coast. I kind of like having the PDF. It's really kind of neat to get a full function PDF. So you could print it. But the funny thing is like the, they bring it back to the Monsters Compendium of second edition. But one of the things about that is every monster had a page, like a full page. And this one, they split monsters across pages. So it wouldn't work if you, if you tried to print it out and sort it like you did in the three ring. It doesn't work. So a handful of monsters. How many here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten monsters, right? Ten, ten free monsters. They all have artwork, which is really cool. I took a look at these monsters. I really like them. Here's a asteroid spider. These are all Planescape. The first volume are all Planescape-y monsters. So we get some Planescape monsters right away, right? Asteroid Spider, 348 hit points. CR 15, Siege, I think it's a Siege thing, right? Snares ships, reels the ships in, crushes them. Pretty cool art. Like, look at that artwork, right? Like your ship got grabbed up by a big Asteroid Spider. I really dig that. 
Clockwork Horror, little small thing, CR2. This is right out of Numenera, right? I was just talking, just doing my Numenera prep, and this is like right out of that thing, you know, two bite, two bite rotating saws. What I love about this is these things invade a ship and steal the helm and then take over the ship, right? This is pretty cool that they, they, they try to go in. They have this like spell jamming helm interface. Attaches a spell jamming helm, I can see within five feet, tunes instantly. If another creature, it takes over the attunement of someone else, the horror can operate the helm even though it isn't a spellcaster. The horror can detach from the helm so it can like crawl onto your ship, take over, and take over your ship. Little pirates. I, of course, was really excited about the Eldritch Lich, and I like it. I like it very much. The Eldritch Lich is a CR 15 Lich. The hit points are a little bit low, 165. I keep thinking like a sharpshooter is just going to eat this dude up. But it's, and it's very a straightforward, simple stat block. Like, look at this. This is not like a giant two-page spread. A lot of people are like, it's a lich, but it has hardly any spell casting. And they're like, yeah, that's true, right? But it also an eldritch, eldritch lich is more like a warlock anyway. So warlocks also don't have a lot of spells. So I, in this case, I think it probably, probably fits. A uh, little low on hit points. Everything else is really solid. Does a lot of damage, about two, 100 points of damage around uh, between its parasitic tentacle attack and the psychic whispers attack. Uh, it dish, dishes out a lot of damage plus, plus you know, real static things. So yeah, it's a it's a strong, I wish I had used this guy. This would have made a really good version of my boss in my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game. I would have been very excited to use that. And this Eldritch Lich, is it's in the Spelljammer book, but you could use this anywhere. There's nothing that makes that one particularly Spelljammery. Fractine, I mean, I'm not going to go through all these because you can go download them and check them out for yourself and you can decide if you if you dig them. But I think they're really cool. Nightmare Beast, my friend Teos is like, the Nightmare Beast used to be a Dark Sun thing and now it's not a Dark Sun thing. That's weird, you know. So who knows? Uh, Puppeteer Parasite, you know, lots of things. The Star Lancer is really good. What I, you know, a lot of it is like, what is, where did this come from? Like, why are we getting this? And is it because... The Spelljammer books are relatively small. We're going to talk about that. And they have some extra monsters. And they thought, why don't we release some monsters this way? Is this like a new thing they're doing? I don't know. We'll see if we get more of these. We'll see how often we get them. We'll see how many monsters we get. But hey, whatever. 14 pages of free monsters. I'm on board, right? I'm good. That have been through full development and everything like that. I think that's a fine fine way to go. The, the PDF is very pretty. You can download it and save it. All totally free. I dig it. Monsters in the Multi. I tried to make a timeline. They didn't announce this really, but I, I tried to make a timeline of all of the books that we're seeing from Wizards of the Coast that are coming out for the rest of the year. So I put Monsters of the Multi Multiverse on there, which is coming out on my birthday. So that's kind of nice. Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel is coming out. They had a little bit of a talk about this. This is a book full of a bunch of adventures that are set in all different kinds of cultures. Big, wide range of diverse authors that wrote these things. That's coming out on June 21st. So that's cool. Does that one have a, does Journeys have a different, does it have an alternate cover? It does. I need to call my place and tell them I want the alternate cover version. I actually think I like the other cover better, but I don't know. I'm still going to get the alternate cover. So I got to call my game shop and get the alternate cover. So this, these are the two, two big surprises. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on one of these than the other. And that's the, the creature, the campaign case creatures. I have really felt like as long as I've been playing D&D, that it's kind of like buying half a game, particularly when they did a lot of focus on gridded play. This is mostly in the third edition and fourth edition days where the, the game really expected that you were playing on a grid. And I was like, that's great, but you're not selling reasonably priced accessories to let us play in a grid. And, and saying like, well, WizKids makes minis. It's like, oh, great. So if I spend a few thousand dollars on miniatures, I might have as many as I need. And the answer is you never have as many as you need. So I was like, wow, finally, finally, right? It looks like Wizards, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy they're trying. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to see what it's like. Yeah, I don't need them, right? Because I got a million other ways to do them. 
but I'm, I want to buy them to try them out and see how they and see how they work. And I'm just happy they're trying something. And I'm happy that they're trying something relatively new. So the way this works, I think it's expensive though. I think it's like 70 bucks, right? I think I think I saw a pre-order cost and I think the pre-order cost on Amazon was like 70 bucks. So it's not exactly cheap, but you know, it's certainly cheaper than than others. And you think about like Paizo put out the Pathfinder bestiary box that has uh, paper cardboard stand-ups. A lot of people like those. Some people don't. I guess it's 65, 65 bucks on Amazon. Cool. All right. Still, you know, that's not totally unreasonable. And... They're trying a whole new thing. So in these, they have weighted plastic tokens. And we'll see what these feel like. I imagine they'll feel pretty good. You want you want them to have a little bit of heft to them. They have a smooth top. They almost look like poker chips, but I bet you they're thicker and I bet you they're heavier than a poker chip is. And they have a smooth top. And then it comes with static uh, vinyl paste-ons, right? Vi static vinyl, they're not stickers, right? Stick stickums, what are they called? And it comes with sheets of these things and you peel off the monster or you peel off your token and you drop it on top of a token and now you've got a token that's like a spider, right? Or whatever you need. I think that's great, right? And it looks like it's got three different colors, blue, red, and, and gray, right? So you have sort of different clings, they call them. Yeah, static clings, right? And it looks like a really good way to be able to pack a lot of monsters, right? There's, there's 64 total plastic discs five sheets. I think it's like a hundred and some, let's say 165 different monsters or something like that, but five sheets of reusable cling monsters, right? So it looks like a good approach and I'm, I'm excited for it. I'm just happy for them to do something because I feel like this is an area where there's really not a lot of good products. There's nothing that's very reasonably priced to be able to do this. Sunjammer says it's about 50 cents a monster. That's a little high, right? Consider it's a lot of monsters, but it's pretty good. So, you know, some people might not need it. We'll see how it does. I don't know if it's going to be super popular. We'll have to see, right? But I'm, I'm on board because it just feels like there's a missing product here. It feels like something's not there. So good on them. I'm a little less, I'm a little more bearish on the terrain one, only because I've tried a lot of this stuff before. Now, it's neat that, again, they have sort of this, the, they have the, the static clings, the vinyl static clings for different terrain. But I've tried, it looks like they lightened up the grid. So that's good. I remember I bought the board. So they have a, this this set is a box again, same, same price, I think. And it includes a bunch of five inch tiles that lock together with like, like puzzle pieces and then a great big board. And so you could sort of build a, around a thing, a 22 by 25 wilderness and dungeon terrain side. And then a bunch of terrain things. I mean, it looks fine. The, the question is this stuff never really fits the maps that you need. Right, and, and I've tried this stuff. Uh, I think it is dry erasable. Pretty sure it's dry erasable, right? But you expect expectations can be using these clings. And that's fine, but I've, I had these. I actually just gave away all this stuff. I had a big box of it sitting in my house forever. And I'm like, I don't really, I'm never gonna use this stuff again. So I gave them all away, right? Somebody's very excited to pick up them and get, get, I gave them all away. So neat stuff, but I, I think like we have other options for this one, like big one inch grid uh, paper that you can draw maps out on. We also have like the Paizo flip map. We have a lot of other approaches for terrain that we don't have, unlike minis where we really don't have a good affordable solution for minis, which is why I, I do my, my lazy D&D tokens. The reason I did that is because it really isn't a product that solves that need, in my opinion. The D&D starter set officially got announced. We knew that this was coming because we saw like, I think it got leaked a few weeks ago by Hasbro, right? And uh, so there's a DD starter set called Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. 
It's coming out August 1st in Target, uh, exclusive to Target first, and then will be in October everywhere else. I remember that when the Essentials kit came out, there was a lot of people like, oh, it really sucks that it's in Target first. And it's like, yeah, but eventually it's in everybody's hands. So it really doesn't matter that much, in my opinion. I did order a couple of copies to see what it's like. I'm excited for it. They they say that they are, they say that they've they've refined, like trying to make it even easier for people to get involved. They did say that this is has some digital onboarding in it, which I assume means that it gives you like a coupon that lets you get either discounted. I would expect the same way they did with Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, where you get a free digital copy of the adventure and you get probably a player's, a discount on a player's handbook or something like that. So we'll see. This is it's kind of the third starter set. It's the second starter set because the Essentials Kit is really kind of different. And I wonder if they're, I hope they don't, make the essentials kit out of print because it's a fantastic starter set too does not have as much stuff as the essentials kit does but the, does but the price is 20 bucks i think very reasonable 20 bucks msrp so again you'll probably see sales on amazon where it's like nine dollars right really good comes with dice comes with an adventure comes with a book looks like I, I i don't know if you can make it looks like it comes with pre-gen characters and maybe you can make a character too We'll have to see. But I don't think it goes all the way to like fifth level. I think it goes up to like third level. So we'll see. So that looks really cool. I ordered it. I'm excited to get it. That's August 1st. It's a couple months away. And then, of course, the big announcement, Spelljammer. Spelljammer is going to be a box set. It's going to include three 64-page hardcover books in a slipcase with a DM screen. And I think the price for that, is there a pre-order price? Uh, let's take a look. Is it 70? I think it's 70 bucks. $70, right? Uh, 70 bucks MSRP. So pretty costly, right? Like I think was well, well beyond the witch light. I don't have it handy here, but I think like witch light was 50, right? And so there's some criticism. So, you know, cool. I'm on it. I'm going to buy it. I already pre-ordered the special edition covers and I, you know, I get, I get caught in hype too. Right. I get caught up in the hype and I'm caught up in the hype. I think it'll be pretty cool. But there's some good arguments that like so this is 192 pages of material, which is typically smaller than like the often like a 224 page hardcover book that you might get. And it costs more. And you're getting a DM screen. But like I don't use a DM screen and it comes in a slipcase, but I wouldn't need a slipcase if it was one book. So this is their attempt to try different formats. Right. And see if see if people like the formats. But and I'm not complaining like whatever. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick it up. I'm sure I like it, but there's some good arguments about like, well, is 64 pages. Is there not like some people are saying like, look, I really expected a meteor source book and it's the meteor, right? Meaty, like a meat, like meat, not like a meteor spell jammer problem, spell jammer collision. But is there enough space to really fill out the campaign of spell jammer in one 64 page book that also includes player options? Cause the three books are, about the world and the player options, monsters, and an adventure, a, a set of adventures, 12 adventures or something like that. So is that enough? Who knows, right? But, you know, we'll see, right? We'll see. So, you know, it's, it's always funny where like everybody's like, oh, yeah, everybody, a bunch of loud people were like, wow, we really want Spelljammer. And they're like, okay, here it is. Like, oh, I, I don't like it. I don't like the way you did it. It's like, oh, man, you know, can we all just relax? A little bit. I mean, you know, on the other hand, feedback is important and complaining is fine. And if it turns out that like the box set with three books was not a good approach, because I was like, what, what do I want? Right. And I'm like, I think I'd rather just have a big book. Right. I don't think I need, I would rather have a bigger book that costs less and doesn't have a DM screen. Right. I think I would be fine with that. I, if you look at like Strixhaven, I have Strixhaven here somewhere. Yeah. Right. So Strixhaven is a similar kind of book, right? It's got player options. It's got 
stuff about the world and it's got an adventure in it. This book was $50. So it's MSRP and I know inflation, right? right? We're like 192% inflation a day or something like that. But this book has, it's $20 less and it came out pretty recently, right? It's $20 less. It has a map in the back, right? I didn't even take my map out. But it has a map. So the idea that like, oh, you can only have a map. That's not true. You can put a map in there for 20 bucks. And it is a bigger book. It's a 224 page book, right? So a pretty good, that's like, is that 32? I don't know how many more pages that is, right? So, you know, but it's a good significant. It's about 30 pages bigger and $20 less. So I would I would probably, you know, I'm, I don't need a new format. I remember when Ray Weninger talked about new formats. I can't get it in my bookcase. Hang on a second. Oh, get in there, you bastard. Come on. Oh, there we go. So, yeah. So, I you know, I know they talked about new formats. I'm, uh, you know, I, I applaud Wizards for experimenting and trying things. That's fine. I'm good with the, the book is a solid format that's been around for like 4,000 years. I think we can, I think we can agree that that is a solid technology, but that's fine. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to buy it and I, I may run it. We'll see. Finally, they did announce Dragonlance as well, that later this year, we don't know when there's going to be two big Dragonlance products. Uh, one is Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen, which is going to be an adventure book, it looks like. And then two is Dragonlance Warriors of Kryn, which is a board game made by a couple of big veteran legacy board game people that apparently is tied together, right? That you can apparently stage the big war using Warriors of Kryn and still connect it with your characters and stuff from Shadow of the Dragon Queen Adventure. So that looks like it could be kind of fun. It is. There is no campaign book for Dragonlance, but I would bet you this is like a campaign adventure, right? It's going to be a full book. So it's probably, it's certainly going to have Dragonlance stuff in there. And I'm sure their expectation is you have no experience with Dragonlance when you pick up this book. So there's obviously going to be something. But again, same that way that Strixhaven is a big adventure book. I would imagine the Dragonlance book might be similar to like your, your Strixhaven kind of book where it's sort of an adventure. Or what's the other one that just came out? Call from the Netherdeep, right? Similar, similar approach. So we'll see. Anyway, cool stuff. Good announcements. I'm, I'm happy. I'm excited for them, but maybe this isn't your bag. So I've, I've had, we had, we had a big kind of chat thing on my discord server where we were all kind of talking about this and you know, it's easy to get excited about this stuff. I get excited about this stuff, but I always remember like, Hey, you know what, what, when I went in, I was like, what do I hope they'll do? I'm like, I don't really, and then like, say, I don't care. It's not, you know, it sounds dismissive. But like, I'm happy with whatever they're going to do. And I'm happy with whatever they do because I don't hold them in this position that my whole game depends on what they do, right? I know I talk about this a lot and some people are like, stop talking about this, right? I get it. But the reality is maybe you look at this and you're disappointed. Oh, I was, I, you know, Spelljammer is too weird, right? Spelljammer is too weird. I don't care about Dragonlance. There's nothing here for me, right? Except there's lots of stuff out there. Right. So in this question of like what other campaign stuff is out there, if you wanted, if you were looking for a great big campaign thing, there are lots of others. And I have a big list. Tolis by Monty Cook Games, Midgard by Kobold Press, Odyssey of the Dragon Lords, Arcana of the Ancients and Beneath the Monolith by Monty Cook Games. If you like the Numenera stuff I was just talking about, Taldorai Reborn, a whole new campaign world. Even if you're not into Critical Role, it's an entire campaign world that you can dive into that's been incredibly well put together. Drug Dungeons of Drakenheim, Grim World, Southlands, there's all kinds of stuff. There's so many different things for our game. So if you don't dig in this stuff, yeah, Old Gods of Appalachia is a Kickstarter going on right now. I, 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 I don't know if I'm going to review it, but they're doing very well and it looks very cool and I backed it. There's lots of stuff going on in this industry. There's lots of stuff that's going on for D&D. &D. There's lots of things you can do. 
my my argument if you look at this and you go i'm disappointed because they didn't do either i wanted dark sun and they didn't do dark sun or i wanted something new and they didn't do something new or whatever hang on a little less to what wizards of the coast does because you know they're never going to do exactly what you want right they're not going to do exactly what i want my only hope for wizards of the coast is that when the new reimagining or whatever they're calling it of the source books comes out that in 2024 we're calling it dnd 5.5 right when dnd 5.5 comes out i have a lot of specific hopes for that and probably one day i'll talk about them but my my general hope is that it's better than the current and i love the current one right so i i hope they don't break the game with the new edition right i hope that they don't hurt this whole wonderful thing that we don't. And I know that they're thinking the same thing. I know that the last thing in the world they want to do is put out an edition that splits everybody up. I think it's inevitable that they're going to split it up. I don't think there's any way they can do it. But really, I only care about what they're doing for that. And even then, if they do weird stuff, I've still got the old books and I'm happy. So I would like them to fix things that I think need to be fixed and then leave a lot of it alone. They're still making noise like everything is compatible. And that's good. That means if they're staying roughly to what's compatible, I'm good. That's the only area where I'm really hanging on to what Wizards of the Coast does. The rest of it, like source books and stuff, they're making great stuff. I love the stuff that they're putting out. I buy everything that they put out. I think they're a fantastic publisher of D&D material, and I like them. I don't think that they have to define D&D for me. I can love material from lots of different publishers. and do. Let's do a... Let me check all these. Uh, do, do, do. Do, 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 do. let's take a look at a kickstarter talking about third-party publishers my friend josh perry jvc perry has a kickstarter for shadow under hard flint hall this is a very straightforward i i asked him before the show hey and he's here in the twitch chat so you can ask him questions directly this is a very straightforward 40-ish page i think it's 40 pages josh you told me it was 40 pages a 40-page adventure that a good solid traditional DD adventure right it's dwarves digging too deep things getting released it's you know a straightforward you know standalone first edition first standalone fifth edition adventure for tier one characters for you know first first to fifth level characters it's got cool it's a full color internal is there a sample i don't think we have a sample right josh is there a sample i don't think you have a sample yet Lots of screenshots though, right? And uh, really cool straight, no sample yet, he says. Okay, so we got cool maps. Chloe, is, is do I write that Chloe, Chloe Ballard is one of your cartographers, right? No, Saga McKenzie. Yeah, so I also worked, Saga did the maps for the Lazy DMs Companion. Fantastic cartographer. So I'm very excited for that. I mean, so, so Josh Perry, JVC Perry is everywhere. He's written so much stuff and you can see his writing all over different products like I, you know i get lost sometimes about how many different products uh, jvc perry is writing for josh perry's writing for and this is josh's direct kickstarter right one one that josh has done directly and very reasonably priced right i like in fact you know questionably reasonable twenty dollars for a soft cover full color book wow plus the pdf wow I don't, I don't envy you, but $13 for the PDF. So if you want to just get a digital version, that's why I was like 13 bucks, but it's 20 for the physical and PDF, $7. That's worthwhile. So I'm, I'm definitely, I, I backed at the, I backed at the soft cover plus PDF, but I don't know where you're printing things. I don't know which alternate universe you're drawing energy from. So you can print books so cheap because that is pretty cheap. So yeah, really cool. You read the storyline straight, 
straightforward, fun, good traditional D and D, which I which I really like. I like I like that we can take it. And we can have really wild adventures on one side, like your spell jammery stuff, and then we can have like, what about dwarves digging too deep? Right. And I'm like, cool. I would run, I would run an adventure like that. So I'm very excited for this. I'm very excited for this Kickstarter. I'm very excited for this adventure. I definitely recommend backing it. If you are a digital only person, click on the, you know, pick up the PDF. For me, I'm in the US. I presume US shipping will be pretty reasonable because we don't have that and things like that. And $20, you're paying an extra $7 for the book. I, I saw that price and I assumed that that meant it was like the a print on demand coupon code, <laughs> but apparently not. So. Josh says he's printing in the UK. So very cool. I am excited for this. And here's a whole descriptions about like the, what the chapters of the book are like. So this is kind of like the outline I was expecting, right? And uh, very cool stuff. Just a real good, solid, straightforward Kickstarter. Nothing crazy, not huge source books, no plushies, no custom miniatures, just a fun 40 page staple bound, staple bound, right? I love staple bound stuff. Uh, 40 page staple bound adventure. Shadow Under Shadow Under Hardflint Hall by JVC Parry. Back it. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month, I put up a thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon. Oh boy, I should have done some homework for this first question. Every month, uh, I put up a thread for Patreon where I say, "Hey, this is your Q and A. I will answer every question that is that is brought up there on the Patreon. Some of them I put in the show, and we talk about on the show." And some of them I will actually do a video or an article about. So these are the ones that I've said, yes, these are good topics to talk about on this show. Christopher W. says, who or what are your go-to people, channels, podcasts, writers, etc. for DMing advice? I have a few. I have a few that I like. I really like, so so Bob World Builder, I'll, I'll link to all of these in the show notes. And if people want to link to this in Twitch chat, that'd be awesome. I love Bob World Bob World Builder's YouTube channel is excellent. He's a he's a really cool guy. It's very relaxed. It's very different. It's not the same kind of like frantic YouTube sort of feeling that you get. I really I really like Bob World Builder. Uh, I really like Professor Dungeon Master on the Dungeon Craft channel. I enjoy I enjoy that one a lot. He's got a really good perspective on things. It's fun. It's a little YouTube-y. But it's 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 pretty great. Of course, I always listen to my friends Sean and Teos on Mastering Dungeons. That's the number one, my favorite D and D podcast. It helps that I know the two of them. It also helps that they have me on their show. And there is a new Eldric Lorecast, which is done by Sean Merwin is on it. Joey Hake is on it. And it is run by Ghostfire Games. That has become uh, a podcast that I like. Uh, I like Morris's unofficial tabletop podcast. I find that one really enjoyable. Morris has been in this industry forever. Very relaxed podcast. Really, really a good time to listen to it. So I, I enjoy I enjoy that one a lot. I don't really hit up a lot of other YouTube channels. I kind of dive in and take a look at things, but I don't hit up a lot on YouTube. Justin Alexander at The Alexandrian is a fantastic blog with lots, lots of really good information. I, I dig that a lot. My friend DM David runs uh, his DM David blog. It's always a good read. Very in-depth, very insightful thoughts that he has on, 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 his, on his blog. I, I like that one a lot. And then I do uh, a fair bit of I do a fair bit of reading on Reddit. So one one thing I try to do is like I I don't I don't want any s certain voices to kind of overtake the the hobby for me. So I try not to just kind of fixate on a few personalities and read and think about what they read and think. I want to try to keep a better thumb on things. There is no fantastic way to do that because everything is biased in different directions. 
So if you're big on the Twitter community for D&D, it's going to be biased in one direction. If you're if you're focused on various subreddits on Reddit, that's going to be biased in another direction. If you go over to the Facebook D&D group, it's going to be biased in a different direction. It's rare to find, you know, you're not going to find uh, a wide view of this topic in any one place. So I try to do a little bit of all of them. I spend a little bit of time on Twitter, a lot less time on Twitter these days than I used to. And but I do spend a fair bit of time looking at two different subreddits, the D&D Next subreddit, which I, I like a lot. Some I mean, they, and they get frustrating, too. I'll read them and I'm like, oh, God, you know, so they're not the best. Right. But sometimes they're really great. And I really like the DM, the DMs Academy on the DMs Academy subreddit. I like a lot. That's a much bigger. It's a good way that that's a fantastic way to get some advice and some things that have really resonated with me. I found on that on that on that subreddit. The DMs Academy is a fantastic subreddit. I really, I really like that one. So Christopher, I hope that answer again, I will link to all these in the notes below, but those, those are the ones off the top of my head, right? The, the ones that, that jump straight to mind. Jordan L says, I need an intervention. I can't stop fudging rolls and pulling punches. My group is getting back to the table after hiatus and the last session ended with the party moving towards a boss battle. I want this fight to be challenging and to use your deadly encounter benchmark, but I feel like the numbers are good for what I need. But I have a history of negating my own natural 20s for monsters or making suboptimal combat choices to make sure I don't make the players feel like I'm focusing fire on their character. I'm considering rolling in front of the screen so I can't fudge any rolls, but I'd love to hear any advice. I roll in front of the screen, even if it's virtual or physical. I don't I don't hide my dice rolls. Uh, I like to say that I, I don't cheat on dice rolls, but I cheat everywhere else, right? And the so having your hand on the dials can help a lot, right? I talk about those dials and tweaking the dials again to make sure that it's fun, not to you're not negating bad choices or or hard situations, but yeah, and I feel bad too. Like I, I have a player who has now cast Fairy Fire on multiple monsters and had everybody save twice. And I feel bad because it's like, why are you blowing? Uh, it sucks that he blows his good big spell. It's a low-level character. He blows his big spell and nobody fails to save. I hate that, right? And But I rolled in the open. He knows they made it, right? I can't say, oh, no, one of them failed, right? That's a bummer. So I, I feel that. Fudging rolls and, you know, don't worry about being a nice DM. I've talked about this before. People are like, oh, I'm too nice. No, don't worry about that. That idea of the killer DM. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the idea of the killer DM. But I also let the story go where it goes. And sometimes that means the dice fall where they may. And it's sometimes really hard things. A lot of it is getting into the minds of the monsters. And sometimes the monsters are just attacking randomly. So one thing I do to make sure that there isn't like I'm picking on somebody is I roll. I will default to rolling attacks against random opponents, right? Only if it really makes sense for a monster to tune and to, to turn. I will Sometimes I will ask, like, it looks like the monster is going to attack the cleric. Did anybody want to try to get in the way? It's a little 13th age, right? Did anybody else want to interpose themselves between here? And then the fighter has a choice. And the cleric will be like, no, I'm, I've got it, right? I, I let the players kind of dictate a little bit of, of that sort of direction, especially in theater of the mind, where they might have those options, but they wouldn't see them because you're in theater of the mind. So... A lot of times I'll roll for random randomly to determine who a monster attacks. That ensures that I'm not playing favorites one way or the other. And then sometimes I will let the players sort of make the choice, right? And they'll be like, well, what do you mean? Can I jump in the way? I'm like, no, you might have already, you would have known to position yourself if that was your intention. You can sort of like roll the camera back, right? Roll the time back and say, did you, did you want to arrange yourselves a certain way so that when these ogres are coming and attacking you, that they're attacking certain members, right? Or, or not. And sometimes, no. Nah. And then they're like, ogres mashing the wizard, right? So I wouldn't worry too much. I, I would roll in the open. Try it. 
I mean, try everything, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying it's the best way, but I'm saying you can give it a shot. Try rolling in the open and seeing if that, if that prevents you from cheating on the dice rolls. And then use the dials to do other things. Like maybe they only make one attack instead of two on a multi-attack. Maybe they randomly, you know, try random, try rolling randomly and try rolling randomly in front of the players so they know you weren't picking on anybody. It was character four and character four is that person, right? So those are some thoughts. Jordan, I hope that answers your question. Sam M says, what are your thoughts on find familiar? I had a player with an Al familiar last campaign, and even though he's pretty good about it and didn't abuse it, I still felt like it took away from the exploration pillar of the game. Out anything outside was instantly scouted with no cost or risk outside of the time and paltry 10 gold to cast a ritual. And with dungeons, I feel like it creates similar problems to the sneaky rogue who wants to solo everything, hogging the spotlight. There's not a good way to break up the familiar scouting every room and involve the rest of the players. Uh, I want the party to be the ones in, uh, in on the action exploring and not a dispensable critter. Strangely, I've never had a problem with the familiar in combat, though I hate having additional creatures and initiative. You and, you and me both. Uh, if they want to do something, uh, they usually die in one shot. Then the next turn, there's no, no big deal there. It's more of scouting exploration. So there's a couple. This is a problem. I've had this where somebody uh, actually for me, it was an arcane eye, right? It was a wizard that could cast arcane eye, which is even worse than a familiar because the arcane eye is invisible. They really can't see it with a familiar. Like if you're in a, in a bunch of caves and there's a bunch of like goblins in the caves and a freaking owl comes flying through and it's like looking goblins might recognize like that's a spy and kill it right? Maybe it's got some kind of stealth. Maybe it's able to kind of hide, but maybe not. And maybe the familiar gets killed. And maybe that alerts the people in the caves to the fact that, that they're, they're being re, re, reconnoitered, right? That, they're, they're, that people are spying on them. So you might, you might let the players know a little bit like dark vision, right? You might let them know ahead of time, like it's possible they're going to see your familiar and it's possible that will alert them to your presence. Are you sure you want to do that? You can also kind of go offline. I, I had this trouble with Arcane Eye because Arcane Eye, you know, nobody can really see it. Where like I was kind of randomly rolling a, a, a dungeon where I was good, like scene by scene, I was going to play it out and they recon the whole thing and I had to come up with all of it right there on the spot. And that was actually pretty hard. I think I managed to do it. I don't think they were none the wiser, but it can be a problem. So I don't, I don't have a great solution to this other than to kind of lay out some guidelines for the players or some rules for the players to say, this is how this can work. I do this with um, one, of my, one of my least favorite spells, which is Pass Without Trace, right? The problem with Pass Without Trace is it's a little bit fuzzy in its wording and it almost sounds like it's group invisibility, right? And it's not. So my big thing with Pass Without Trace is it works well outdoors, it doesn't work well indoors. And that way it's like, you can't use it to wander through a whole dungeon. They're gonna see you. But if you're wandering around in the wilderness and the outside, that's a fine way to go without people being able to track you and being able to see, you know, you can hide really well. The problem is it's like a plus 10 bonus to stealth. So well, that's practically invisibility, right? So, so you might lay out some kind of ground rules on how you're going to interpret a scene like this. It's not really a house rule. It's just sort of laying out how that kind of thing is going to work. Sam, I hope that answers your question. Jamie says, when describing a room with an obvious monster, do you start with the monster and then describe the room's contents, bookshelves, treasure chests, etc., before the party launches an attack? Or do you start by describing the contents of the room and then end with the reveal that there's a monster 10 feet in party. I like to do it both ways. I don't, I don't, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, I've heard of people that offer the advice of always describe the most important thing first. I don't know. Sometimes it's fun to be like, you know, oh, you notice that there's like a gilded, 
gilded frame in the in the stained glass window and there's emerald stuff and over on the desk there's a small china cup with a pattern that's showing a tea party a beautiful tea party and then oh there's also a balor uh in the center of the room i think you can you can have fun with it both ways so i try sometimes i'm i try to be as specific as possible about what's going on but i don't hang on too tight and sometimes it's fun to build up right sometimes i find that for the pacing it's kind of fun to build the anticipation of, oh yeah, and by the way, the room's on fire, right? I I I I don't hang on too tightly. Some some do. Some are very. I think it's very important that you always describe the most important things, and that's why we have like the three. You know, when you do like a fantastic location, you have like what are the three things you're going to describe about this room that really matter? So Devin Thunderstrike says, I find that once a creature is mentioned, they forget about everything else in the room. That can certainly be. Certainly, if it's like a combat encounter, you probably want to describe the things that are going to matter to combat, right? But other times, I like to do the other things. So, yeah. Tim S., when we write our strong starts, how do we actually begin the session? If it's a combat encounter, do we say, okay, welcome to the session, roll initiative? Sure. Or do we have uh, that strong combat poised and start the session with a calm before the storm? I ask because I've been running the, it the first way and I've had players comment they found it jarring to end one session in one place only to have the next start with a jump cut into the action. I only just considered that maybe the strong start is just what you do uh, after you get everyone back to the groove and talk through what happened. So I actually start, I, I think I've mentioned this before, that I start my session by asking people to describe what happened in the last session's game. And we kind of talk about where we got. And then I jump into the strong start. It's For me, it's like a nice way to sort of get everybody into the action and go. It's not perfect. It's still, I, I still get a lot of blank stares, right? And usually somebody's like, oh, let me check out the notes, right? And actually, for people who take notes, it really helps. And so, so I'll start it that way. Sometimes I might describe where it's going. And remember, a strong start doesn't always need to be combat. And I think roll for initiative is a wonderful strong start. But you probably don't want to do it all the time. And, and if you are doing it all the time, I think it can certainly get wearisome. It is Roll for initiative is kind of a downward beat. It's an exciting beat, but it's a downward beat because it means you're in combat. Whatever, all of the other stuff has failed. You failed at stealth. You failed at diplomacy. You failed at you know, exploring for a different path. And now you're in a battle. Right. Even though we love the combat of D&D, it's often the last state that somebody actually wants to be in. Right. Because it's dangerous. So that means you're starting with the downward beat. So if you start with downward beats every session, that's going to be that's going to be a bit much. So I think but but a strong start really just means something happens. Right. What's the thing that happens? Is it a meteor crashes down into the sky off in the horizon? Is it. You know, you see a, a small child stealing a coin purse from the from the the, 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 the Lord that's walking by. It can be just it's an it's something that happens that can kind of start the session off. It doesn't always have to be combat. It shouldn't always be combat. Combat's an easy one, but it shouldn't always be that way. And that said, you can have your own ritual. Like my, my I have I have two rituals, right? My first ritual is who wants to describe what happened in the last session's game? All right. I, I need to change that one up. I don't think it works fantastic, right? I, I think, but it, it's, it's not always terrible and my players are certainly used to it, but it doesn't really start us off. It kind of starts it out with like, okay, who wants to do the homework, right? It's not great. And then the, the last one is, and that's where we'll end tonight's game, right? And I usually end at some little bit of a cliffhanger, some bit of excitement. And I usually stop and say, okay, and that's, the, that's where we'll end today's game. So uh, what that means is I don't start with roll for initiative every time, but I think, it, you know, it can, it can happen, right? It's not... It's not, it's not bad. So try, try different things out and see what fits. 
Nathan D says, do you have any suggestions for introducing a play group to other tabletop RPG systems? My players enjoy 5e, and while I'm happy to DM for them in 5e, I'd also like to introduce them to other systems, such as Morpheus's 2D20, Star Trek Adventures Fallout, Numenera, Cypher System. Understandably, learning a new system can be a big ask. It is a big ask. I would make sure your players are as interested as you are in trying to run another system, right? And maybe they are, and you certainly get 51% of the vote. But certainly, like, you're asking a lot to, like, learning a system is pretty hard work. And I know the good news when I was running Blades in the Dark and now Numenera is my players came to me and said, hey, why don't we try out some other system? At least one or two players said, I would like, I think one player said, how do we feel about doing it? And then other players said, yes, I would really like to do that. And then I said, sure. So it was really different right than me saying hey everybody how would you like to run x i did do that for my other group is that i'd like to try shadow of the demon lord right and it worked really well there but make sure your players are, are good with it because like asking them to learn a whole new system i know like i have friends who like want to teach me things or, or a, a new system or a new board game and i'm like i'm tired man i got so many things i'm learning i just want to play right so you can get kind of you can get sort of you know fatiguing to, to learn it especially if you're not gonna play for very long so I would talk to your players about it. Make sure they're on board. Make sure they're on board with it, right? And and you're, you're picking, I, I haven't tried 2D20, I don't know, but like Numenera, the nice thing about that is it's pretty easy to get started in it. It's not super complicated. I know like I played Traveler with a friend of mine and I liked it, you know, it was interesting, but it was a lot to pick up. And I found Blades in the Dark as a DM to be really a lot to pick up. My players were actually ahead of me in, in really understanding how that game played out because it was a pretty crunchy game. So Nathan, that's, I think that's what I would suggest is really, really sit down with your players and talk to them about what they want. Brooke W says, do you have any tips for making NPCs seem distinct from one another besides visual quirks? I use the lazy DMs companion to roll up personality traits, but I feel like most of the, my NPCs end up talking or sounding the same. They all have different goals. So how do I capitalize on those differences more effectively? That's a good question. I, I'm, I'm sure I gave you an answer on Patreon, but I don't remember what it was. Visual, visual is obviously an easy way, right? And I've, I've seen, and actually I did a, I'm not trying to name drop, but I did have an opportunity kind of before Critical Role really exploded into what it is today to do a, to do a, a conversation with Matt Mercer about how to run NPCs. So I will link to that video. It's an older video, but it had a lot of good tips for how to run NPCs that you can check out. And then some of them are mannerisms, physical, you know, like, do they always scratch their eyebrow when they're lying, right? What are their tells? You can do a little bit of that. Some of it's more subtle than players are going to pick up, but nothing beats a picture, right? If you got, if you get, if you can get pictures of them and say like, this is this guy and this is this guy, pictures help a lot, right? NPC face cards, my friend Joe Wetzel at Inkwell Ideas, I'll link to it in the notes, has NPC portraits that you can pick up. You can pick up these cards, you can drop them on the table. You can also get a PDF and you get a bunch of PDFs of a bunch of NPC pictures. That's a pretty good way to go. Yeah, and and again, I always I always go with the like tell, just tell players things, right? Give them more information than you think you need to give them. So make their agenda real clear because players are not always going to pick it up. Brooke, I hope that helps. Himorishu says, how do you present time limits to your players and PCs? Do you tell them that the villain needs X time to be ready for the world ending ritual? I can't help but fix my own typos. Do you tell them the villains need X time to be ready for the world ending ritual or just try to sprinkle in some clues and let them make the connections? Possibly missing the time limit completely. If there's a time limit that, that they're going to miss, I, I really want them to know about it. I want them to be making decisions or deal with it. It does happen though. So the example was there was a time limit, but I don't hang on too tightly. I don't have like a, I often don't do like the blade in the dark style, you know, or, or, or dungeon or uh, apocalypse world up Armageddon clock, right? Where 
six steps and each of the steps are moving forward. I don't really have something like that, but I might keep something like that in the back of my mind. The example is, and this is a spoiler for Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, the Duergar who are building the Shardalon dragon attack, right? I knew that like eventually if the characters don't do anything, the Shardalon dragon is going to attack and they're not going to be able to stop it. It will have already destroyed some towns before they get there. But I didn't, I, I didn't hang on too tightly and I sort of let that play out in a way that was interesting where they went off to the island, they did a bunch of stuff. When they came back, they saw that 10 towns was on fire. So, but they'd had a few opportunities to try to interject in there and they chose to go the other path. So they weren't disappointed. They knew what had happened. And also it didn't destroy all the 10 towns, right? I just, I, I actually didn't have it destroy almost any more towns than the group who did go after it. So, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of tweak that. I would try to make them aware that the time limit is happening. If it's going to actually have a big negative effect, give them the choice to do something about it. But I, I, I don't hang onto the clock too tightly. I, I let the story sort of play out how it plays out. And if it's more fun for something to scale up or if it's more fun for it to, to, to shorten. So I talked about like the 14 month jump in my Numenera game. I only moved the clock forward 14 months on the things where I thought it was interesting. I didn't say like, yeah, you're totally lost, right? Like fourth empire is back and you're screwed. I, I had it progress, but I had to progress in a way that I thought made the story interesting, right? So I hope that answers your question. Victor G, have you uh, had a game with an evil PC? Should I worry? Yes, you should. Like Anakin Skywalker, I have a PC turning evil without thinking of it that way. He's a necromancer who likes to animate the dead. Mechanically, he sees the fodder. Uh, Flavor-wise, his character likes power. I could develop Merkel, the god of death, into a front, working to fully turn the PC like the Emperor. Or am I looking for trouble? You know where it's really interesting for something like this to take place is at the end of a campaign. Like, make sure the evil doesn't happen until the very end. We had a player who played a character who was slowly getting corrupted throughout the whole campaign, but she was directly involved in all of the main things of the story. And it wasn't until the end that you realize like, oh my God, she actually dominated a lawful good sword and made it serve her evil purposes. It was really, really cool, but it was better that it was happening after the campaign was done so that it didn't affect the campaign. You probably, I, I would not make it a secret. I would, I would try to talk to the, all the players because they, their player might be totally happy with it. And the other players are like, I don't like playing with them. I don't like playing that character. I don't like worrying about that. So it's a good thing to break away and say, well, let's talk about this. Is there a good way that we could go with this where people are happy with it? Take that step and then go back. It seems like a really interesting thing. It's just the problem is not everybody might be on board. And some people are like, eh, it's fine, right? They don't really care. Okay, that's good. Some people are like, yeah, that's really cool. And that's great. It's when you have people who are like vehemently against it. I tried to have a character that betrayed the other characters in my game. And I had one of my players who was like, they... That was that tuned them out. They were not interested. It really, really bugged them. I wish I had done something to find that out before I had revealed it. Right. So I would say be a little careful. I don't. I don't. I'm not a big fan of evil PCs that are playing because I just don't want my game going in that direction. But I did have like a character that was animating dead on stuff, and I did have a. They were going to animate dead on some crushed. There was like these undead, or there was a dead drow that they were going to animate. And I said, let's pause for a minute. Is everybody okay? Casting animate dead. And like, yeah, we had like an animated dead ogre that was carrying around our stuff before. And I'm like, oh, that's right. So everybody's good. And they're like, yeah, we're good. I said, game on. Right. So you just want to check in with the players and make sure is everybody cool? Because you don't want like the paladin who's like, I'm vehemently against undead and I'm going to kill him in his sleep because I think it's better for the world. And now you're like, now you got a PvP problem. Right. So Victor, I would suggest breaking out a character, talking to the players to make sure. Andrea GM says, my players are not murder hobos. Yay. And whenever possible, they try to avoid wanton slaughter, which makes for a good story. But sometimes I want to give the party a bunch of baddies to kill and clearly telegraph that they are bad and that it's time for the holy smites. No regrets, no sleep. 
Lost, no time, just time for combat. Do you have any tips uh, to telegraph that a sentient creature, usually a humanoid, is evil and deserves that holy smite? Uh, cliches I've seen are random torture chamber, a pile of corpses in the dungeon, evidence of necromancy and or serial killing, demon, devil, blood drinking, vampire, etc. Any thoughts, ideas, and tips? Yeah, so those are good ones, right? The murder, the, the terrible murder, psychops, you know, psychopaths, right? People where it's like they, you know, you can have rumors and secrets about like they just killed somebody and didn't even, their eyes, they had doll's eyes or dead eyes, like a doll's eyes, right? And so you get, and, and then you could just tell them, right? By the way, I want you to know, you know, these dudes are really bad. You should not feel bad about killing them, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you could just tell the players that kind of thing. This was my my problem with Wild Beyond the Witchlight is like I I wanted to throw in monsters that I knew that they were happy to kill, and it's like if and many times they're not necessarily sentient, but like when you see a mind flayer vampire devouring the brains of another friendly sentient you're pretty sure like yeah i don't think we need to have a conversation with this dude so there are lots of ways uh that idea of like throwing the dead bodies a big one is getting attacked like if it attacks you and clearly is trying to kill you you're defending yourself and that's okay right in the D, &D world that's considered fine right so that's a that's a big one but yeah i think there's a lot of a lot of the ones you bring up i think are, are fantastic ones right i think i think a lot of a lot of ways of like in, in injecting the secrets and clues or dropping things on them or but a big one is self-defense like they you know oh it's friendly and then they attack you right and then even then you might be like are they bad or we just knock them out or whatever but those can still make interesting stories andrea i hope that i hope that helps Rich G says, what bad or ineffective DM habits practices have you had to rid yourself of over the years? Ooh, that's a good one. I'd love to find, I'm like, I need to think of some recent ones. I'll tell you some big ones. And, and I'll, I'll tell you something where I feel like I have matured uh, in this hobby and that I always, I wasn't always this way. So particularly in the 3.5 and fourth edition days, I was more of an antagonist DM. Like I was there to have a good time and I had, I definitely wanted to kind of share stories that were going on. But I did care about like encounter balance and I did want to make sure that like battles were threatening and I didn't like it when they got circumvented. And so if I had like a big boss and then he gets stuck in solid fog and couldn't move, right? I always felt like I got ripped off. And now the maturity that I found is like, I do feel bad when the players fail at something that they're trying to do to a monster. I revel when they critically hit. I revel when like a bunch of monsters fail saving throws, right? I'm, I'm beginning to set up the situation. I'm beginning to think about building the encounters to show off the characters rather than building encounters that are challenging. And that is a big shift. And that's a shift I think a lot of DMs haven't made. I think a lot of DMs, I see it and I hear it all the time. I see and I hear a lot of DMs who are like, I only ever build hard encounters. Why? Right? Like, you know, because anything else is a waste of time. Is it? it for you, maybe. Not for the players necessarily, because fighting two bandits is fun right? Dominating your enemies is fun. So the practice I got rid of is running hard battles all the time, right? And worrying about the challenge and then getting upset when the challenge gets circumvented by a spell like Banish. Some of the coolest moments that have happened in my games happened when like an Abolith got stuck in a force cage, right? And it was like the Abolith or the Abolith was completely, you know, completely taken out of the picture with one spell casting, no saving throw. And it was still one of the coolest scenes that happened in my game because the Abolith convinced the players to come on over and have tentacles stuck on their brain so they could join the Abolithic sovereignty and learn about their enemies. It was awesome, right? Uh, you know, there are, there are scenes where bosses are killed in one hit 
and it's really m- memorable. I had a I had a player who killed a vampire master, a, ma- a vampire that was more powerful than Strahd, and he beheaded the vampire because he was a he he had that he beha- he had a very powerful sword. He was a power attacker, and he had the mage slayer feet. And the guy cast a spell when he was next to him, and he hit him and he crit, and he dumped all his. I think he was a paladin, and he dumped all his smites, and he did like 102, and he killed the vampire in one hit. I mean, it was a few hits, but you know, one big hit. And he looked up into the sky, knowing that Strahd was scrying on him and said, you're next. And Strahd's like, oh my God, I'm in trouble, right? That was a big change in the campaign. It was really fun. And it was based on some of this overpoweredness. So to me, the big habit that I have changed about is being an antagonist DM and worrying about combat challenge and getting more into building encounters to showcase the characters and to make the story more enjoyable. Peter S., what are the components for a great campaign finale, either for homebrew campaigns or for published ones uh, that, for whatever reason, needs some tuning for the last chapter? I remember you building a list of, 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 uh, for the Eberron campaign, perhaps. But in general, do you have any method uh, to design a satisfying campaign chapter? So yes, I do. Uh, I do recommend taking a look at like the last... Oops, what did I just do? I do recommend taking a look at like my last prep videos for my Eberron game and for my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game. I think that that can show you the kinds of things that I put together when I'm building a final battle. For me, you know, I don't have a check, a perfect checklist, but I think a fun boss fight, some good time for a one year later montage. That's a real big one. I've talked all about a one year later montage beforehand, you know, a few sessions before two or three, four sessions before you're coming to the conclusion Asking the players what arcs they have for their characters that they want to fulfill. Maybe they can fulfill those arcs in the one year later, but maybe there's some opportunities to drop some things in. I think I think that's a big one. You don't have to tie off every loose end. You only want to tie off the loose ends that the players really care about, right? That they care to be tightened up. But otherwise, I really think like having a good boss fight, tuning your boss fight, a multi-wave boss fight is a real good one. Tuning it so that it really challenges the characters. You got hands on the dials. I just talked about not having challenges, but really showcases all the characters can do. Uh, I really liked what I did with Prime of the Frostbane where I threw like, here's a lot of little dudes followed by a couple big dudes followed by like one real big dude you need to control followed by the boss. Those really worked well. That, that, that style really worked well for me. But yeah, I generally, I think like, Talk to the character, if I was going to offer three off the top of my head, talk to the players about what kind of arcs for the characters they really need to tie up. I would have a a nice boss, a nice multi-stage boss fight that really kind of gets the excitement high, gets the crescendo of the campaign high. Let them beat their enemy. Make sure, don't don't try to surprise them in the end. I, I, you know, it's a little hard to do. Generally speaking, don't surprise them in the end. Give them options. Let them choose how they get to end their story, right? And then give them that one year later, what happens one year after the fact. I'll give you a good example of where things can go awry. This is a spoiler for Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. This is a big spoiler for the end of Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. So if you're playing in Rhyme of the Frostmaiden or you plan to, I would suggest skipping forward to the next part of this. But uh, in the end of Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, there's an opportunity where your characters can be teleported like a thousand years previous in time, or maybe it's 2000 years previous in time. That's a really cool idea. But if you just do it, it robs them of the agency of being able to choose how they're going to end their campaign. So what I did is I had a gate open up and they could look through the gate and see that it was 2000 years past and they got to choose if they wanted to go back or time or not. And a couple of characters did and many of them didn't. And then their one, their, their one year later montage could be about that split. And they, you know, some, some players who stayed found artifacts of the people who went back, 
right? Or they said like, we started a church that was based on the my, the other player that went back. It gave them agency. So don't take away agency in your, the end of your campaign. Don't do something that robs them of their ability to end the story they want to tell just because it seems cool. The jump back in, in time in Rhyme of the Frostbane seems really cool. I think I think uh, Sean, uh, I was talking to Sam Dillon about this, and Sam said he ran it that way, but there was this kind of like, oh my God, that happened? Like, well, now what? Oh, well, that's the end, really? He, I think he I think he said that it did, didn't play out like as cool as it seemed because they, I, I feel, when I read it, I wasn't in this game, so I don't really know, but it felt like because they, were, they didn't have a choice, right? And so when I switched to them having a choice, now it was really cool. So don't rob the characters of their agency is probably the big one. So Peter, I hope that I hope that helps. Pim V says, how do you handle situations in your games that would build tension with life or death scenes in movies in real life? Holding someone at gunpoint or pressing a knife against their throat. Does a level one rogue death get to kill the bandit captain? And would you adjudicate this the same reversed? The lowly thug holding the high level player character at gunpoint. So my number one thought with this is don't try to presuppose a situation like that. It's very common. For a DM to want to put the characters in a position where something like this is happening, right? It's a little easier to do that when the NPCs are involved. If the if the if the royal consort has a knife to the queen's throat with poison dripping off the blade, and it's like you're not gonna get a chance to stop that if you don't do something, right? But if you're doing it to the characters, so I would probably let a character assassinate a, a, a bandit captain. I think that that would be pretty cool, right? I think that that gives them some agency to do it. The reverse, I, I, you, it could happen. I've had it happen. In, again, Rhyme of the Frost Main, this isn't a spoiler. The characters went into, the characters figured out through something that, that one of the people that was in the town is actually an assassin and had been part of the assassin guild that they were part of back when they were in Waterdeep. And so they said they tried to ambush the person and the person ended up grabbing them, uh, hit them with a backstab that did like a ton of damage, knocked them unconscious, and then held the poison dagger to the throat. And there was this like really tense Quentin Tarantino moment. Like, are you going to be able to stop her from killing this guy? <laughs> and I made it clear, like she will very, you see how fast she is. She will kill him before you're going to be able to get off your move. Right. But that situation happened on its own. I didn't pre I didn't pre-build it. It occurred that way. They, the choices they made led to that. So the main thing I would I would recommend is go with the flow of the story, but don't try to make something like that happen. Deal with it when it does happen and then kind of explain the rules to the players. Like I know that normally hit points and AC and damage would all be in play here. But given this situation, you're pretty confident that that person is going to be able to kill your friend if you don't do this thing, right? And and you can just sort of say it that way, right? But don't 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 force it. If you force it, it's going to seem convoluted. It's going to seem contrived, and that's not going to be cool. So, Pim, I hope that helps. So we have come to the end of our show today. I want to thank everybody for hanging out today. I always love doing the D&D Talk Show. If you've enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, picking up any of my books or subscribing to my videos right here on YouTube. The links for all of that are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much for a great show today. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D.